So, so today I, I want to speak on hunger, and uh, I'm I'm also going to tie it into wrapping up what Brandon has been speaking on the last several weeks. So, have you guys been here the last several weeks? I've been. I think it's been powerful. It's been some of his best teaching so far. I think he's got many years ahead of him, but man, it's been powerful. He's speaking on identity, and I and I think. Identity is one of those key ingredients, one of those main building blocks to living a life of faith. And uh, now, obviously, Christ is our foundation. That's a huge building block. And and I think, you know, we most of us we gave, we came to Jesus and we said yes. We said yes to the cross. We said yes to salvation because we realized you know, I'm a sinner. I need you, God. I need a Savior. I, I, I know that was me at the, at the young age of seven or eight years old. I, I just had this burning conviction. I need a Savior. <laughs> God, I need you. And then some of us, it's just like we've been living life on our own. Can you guys hear me okay? We've been living our life on our own and we just come to the realization, man... Doing this my own way is not working. <laughs> you have to know something better. And so we turn to God. We, we say, I want to go your way. But simply, it's a response to God calling us. God calling us up and calling us home. Now that is the foundation of following after Jesus. And once we receive Jesus... Here's another building block. We need the Holy Spirit. This is really important. And believe it or not, it's in the Bible, (laughs) that in the book of Acts, did I write it down? I don't remember what chapter. I think it's like 19. Paul comes across a group of people who said that they had just put their faith in Jesus. And Paul's first question was, "Well, well, well, that's great, but did you receive the Holy Spirit? Their response was, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. (laughs) So Paul said, okay, well, we're going to take care of that right now. He lays hands on them. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to speak in tongues and they prophesy. The Holy Spirit is a huge building block to walking a life of faith. And um, it's not just so that we can walk in signs and wonders and miracles. It's also the power of God to live a holy life. So, it's pretty much everything. Once you have Jesus, you need the Holy Spirit. Super crucial. But then there's identity. Knowing our identity actually releases us into freedom. Do you realize that? That knowing your identity releases you into freedom. You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you Free. Come on. John 8.32. That's Jesus. In this context, Jesus was talking to his disciples about continuing in his word. And if they continue in his word, they will be seen and known as his disciples. So if you are the students of Jesus, that's what a disciple is. If you're a student of Jesus, you're going to know the truth and consequently the one who actually is truth. And knowing the truth sets you free. 
when we know the truth, when we know Jesus, we not only see the Father rightly, but we actually begin to see ourselves rightly. That's really key. When we see the Father rightly, we begin to see ourselves rightly. Do you realize that when the Father sees you, He actually sees the Son? He sees Jesus. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, he didn't say if anyone has received Christ into their life. I mean, that wouldn't be an incorrect statement. We do receive Jesus into our life. But he said if you are in Christ, it's like Jesus actually superimposes himself over you. And all the Father sees is His Son. Is that super freeing? That's freeing for me. Paul also said in Romans 12 too, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now what is he talking about? What am I going to renew my mind on? The truth. The truth of who God is and the truth of who He says that we are. Right identity sets us free. Man, do you just feel him in the room right now? <laughs> God. God, thank you for the resurrection life in your words. Now, I'm just recapping right now. I'm, I'm actually just laying a foundation for where we're going. I know you're saying, what does this have to do with hunger? Identity is super crucial. I'm, I'm, I'm going to lead you there. Just bear with me. I'm going to take you on a journey through the Bible. I've already given you several scriptures, but I'm going to take you on a journey through the Bible today. Okay, Matthew 22, 36 through 40. A teacher, or a teacher of the law came to Jesus. He says this. Teacher to Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So loving your neighbor and God are related. What does this have to do with identity? You're to love your neighbor as yourself. The problem is, what happens when you don't love yourself? What happens when you don't know your identity? If you don't have the right identity, if your identity isn't founded in who you are in Christ, who he says that you are, it can be hard to love yourself. Especially in the world of social media. Especially when we have Instagram constantly showing us someone's best life. More than likely, it's not their best life. It's their staged moments, by the way. And comparison clouds the lens of how we see ourselves. Comparison is just a killer. And if we don't love ourselves, this plays into how we love others. If I'm overly critical of myself, I will be overly critical of others. Let's look at um, 1 Corinthians 13. This is where Paul gives all the attributes of love. 
if I'm not patient with myself, I'll probably not be patient with others. If I'm not kind to myself, I will probably not be kind to others. If I keep a record of my own wrongs, building a case against myself, I will probably build a case against others. And you know what? It actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and I just wait for them to do it again. I say, yep, see, I knew it. If, if I don't hope the best about myself, I'm not going to hope the best for other people. I mean, I might say, man, I hope they stop being fill in the blank. But that's not real hope. A biblical hope is the confident expectation that good is coming. Confident expectation that good is coming. Not just, ah, maybe, I'm I'm really wishing for that. It's confidence. But another attribute of love from 1 Corinthians 13 is that it does not seek its own. In other words, love is selfless. When we don't have right identity, when we don't love ourselves, we tend to actually be consumed with ourselves. Every thought is on us. How other people will see us. Now, I, I don't want to put myself out there because I don't want to do the right, th- wrong thing. I don't want to say the wrong thing. What if I make a fool out of myself? I, I, I just won't. I just won't. I just won't. And we won't actually have the opportunity to love people. We won't have the opportunity to love the person standing right in front of us. Because we're too focused on ourselves. We're self-conscious. And remember, I said that loving others and loving God are related. Not only do we indirectly love God by how we love people, that's really important, but we directly, our, our, our love for God is directly related to, ha- to, um, to our identity. It's really hard to love God. If we are me focused. For example, we come to church and we worship God. I mean, we sing this song. Come on and move your body. Come on and praise his name. (laughs) When I open my mouth, when I move my feet. I'm going to praise him with everything that I have. If you are too afraid to step out because of what somebody might think of you. If you're too afraid to sing out because, man, I don't want somebody to hear me. You're actually robbing God of the adoration and praise He deserves. You can't fully love God and be self-conscious. You can't fully love God and be insecure. I want to spend a little time this morning taking a look at the life of King David. I, he's kind of like my go-to person. I know he's in the Old Testament, but, I mean, you can't go wrong if he's 
the one that God proclaimed as a man after his own heart. I, I, I want to be that. I want to be that. So he had just an amazing ability to go right to the heart of God, right to the face of God, to seek intimacy with the Father above all else. So I think David has some clues for us, okay? It's not just because that's my namesake. (laughs) I want to be that. Even though David lived before the full revelation of God revealed in Christ, he lived his his life with an identity rooted in knowing who and whose he was. And because of that, he was perpetually hungry. He was hungry for God's presence. He was hungry to please God. He was hungry to see God glorified on the earth. I want that. Come on. When we are first introduced to David, the prophet Samuel is sent to Bethlehem to anoint a new king. He said, find the man Jesse and have him call his sons. So, Jesse, call your sons. He calls all of his sons. His sons line up. David sees the oldest right before him. He's, he's tall. He's handsome. Strapping young man. He said, surely the Lord's anointed. He looked the part. And God said, I don't look on outward appearance. I look at the heart. Move along. (laughs) And so he goes through all the sons. No. He's not here. Jesse, are you sure you called your other sons? I mean, well, I mean, I called the important ones. I mean, I have this one other son. He's off tending the flock. But, I mean, he's just, he's just a kid. Call him. Hmm. Could you imagine what that would do to a self-conscious person? To an insecure person? If your identity was found in what, what people thought of you, and your own family didn't think you were significant enough to call you before the prophet when the prophet asked for all of the sons. Man. This is probably indicative of how they treated him on a regular basis. They looked down on him and thought of him as insignificant because he was young. But David was a man after God's own heart. He was secure. His identity was found in God. And so he was not going to be shaken by how they treated him, what they thought of him. David was driven by intimacy with the Father. So while in the New Testament, through Christ, we are adopted as sons and daughters of the King, I believe that David's intimacy with God actually unlocked and pulled something into his day that was meant for another day. David, the reason why he was anointed as king was because he was kingly before he was king. For example, in that very same chapter of 1 Samuel where David is anointed king, we find out that Saul has been afflicted by an evil spirit. And Saul's attendants say, well, maybe if we get somebody to come and play the harp all beautifully, 
it'll soothe your mind. Maybe the spirit will then, that evil spirit will then leave. And one of, this, one of the attendants says, I've heard of this one guy. I've heard of this, actually a young kid in Bethlehem. He's a son of Jesse. These are his words. He says, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speak, and a handsome man. And, most importantly, the Lord is with him. So it didn't matter what his family thought of him. He carried himself so that people noticed. (laughs) That's pretty high esteem. Then in the next chapter of 1 Samuel, we have the story of Goliath. Ooh, very famous story. Every one of the Israelite army was afraid of Goliath, including the king. King, the biggest, baddest, the leader, he was afraid. Every day, Goliath would come out and he would taunt the armies of Israel. And David, he wasn't even old enough to be part of the army. But his father said, you know, your son or my sons, your brothers are over with the army. I want you to go check in on them, make sure they're doing okay. I want you to bring them food. So David shows up. And he hears Goliath come out and taunt the armies of the living God. The armies of Israel. So David, hearing the taunts, he asks, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Pooh! Now, of course, his eldest brother was standing nearby. The eldest brother who saw the prophet actually anoint him as king. You imagine, especially in this day, the eldest got everything. The eldest got the birthright. They got the majority of the inheritance. It It was the eldest son that was held in the highest esteem. And here, his pip... Did that just pop? The, his pipsqueak little brother is anointed as a future king. And now, I'm shaking in my boots about this warrior, and my little pipsqueak brother comes up and says, what are you guys all afraid of? I'm going to take this guy on. Man, he had some inner turmoil going on. So he rebukes David. But David wasn't shaken. He actually was like, forget you, I'm going to, hey, do you, do you know what Saul's going to do for, this, for the person that takes down this guy? Because, man, this just can't stand. And so, I'm going to pick up where the story, um, I'm going to pick up on the story in 1 Samuel 17, 31. If you want to follow along. So, verse 31, it says, when the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul. And he sent for him. I'm sure he's expecting some big, tough dude. He's like, all right, we finally have someone stepping up. And then David arrives. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him, meaning Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, 
You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a warrior since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That changed Saul's mind. Oh, man. All right. Go and may the Lord be with you. David's identity was kingly before he was king. I want to take a moment and I want to look at um, David and, and Saul comparatively. And in particular, I want to look at their greatest failings. Not their best moments. It's, it's really great to have strong identity in your best moments. When everything's going right, being confident in who you are and, and God. Right? What happens when everything's falling apart? What happens when you mess up? You really see the true character of a person. So Saul. Saul was commanded by God to take his or to take his army and destroy the Amalekites and all of their livestock because of their sin. So Saul did what was commanded, except that he spared the king and brought the king back, as well as the best of all of the livestock. What was the point of bringing back the king of the Amalekites? It was purely ego. In, in that day, when, when a nation conquered another nation, the king of the conquering nation, if he could, if, if, if the conquered nation's king could be brought back alive, he would. Not to then torture him and kill him. He actually wanted to parade him first in front of all of his people to show, hey, look, your king is so amazing. But then, too, that king would be made to be a servant in the, the, the royal household. For the rest of his days, he would be made to bow down before the conquering king. Somebody needed a constant reminder of how important he was. He needed a constant reminder to his people, look at your king. Even kings bow down before him. Picking up in verse 10, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And if that's not a huge clue there, 
He set up a monument to himself. Look how great I am. Then he turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, and he doesn't even just say the Lord our God. He says the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. We, we, we did pretty much everything you asked. I mean, it's basically the same thing. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil. Sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king also. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has given the kingdom of Israel, or the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the glory of the Lord will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Then he said, meaning Saul, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back following Saul and Saul worshiped the Lord. In his sin, Saul's main concern was saving face. Did you catch that? His focus was on himself. Pure and simply. He was consumed with still being honored as king. 
the thing is, Saul looked the part. When he was chosen as king, the Bible actually says that he was the tallest and the most handsome in all of Israel. Man, he looked like a king. But here in this passage, God reminds Saul that though he was small in his own eyes, he was made king. He doesn't say because he was small in his own eyes, he was made king. Maybe sometimes we read it that way. He was small in his own eyes, and that's why the Lord exalted him and made him king. No, it's even though you were small in your own eyes, God still made you king. In much of the church, we've made it spiritual to look down upon ourselves. If we think of ourselves as small, it means that we're really getting closer to Jesus. If we think of ourselves as small, it it really means that we're selfless. But it doesn't really work that way. People who are small in their own eyes who end up getting titles will spend their whole life trying to prove that they are worthy of the title. Saul was given a kingly title because of a kingly appearance, but he didn't have a kingly identity to back it up. And it was his downfall. He couldn't live up to it. But what about humility? I mean, obviously, humility is important. I think that much of what what the church has historically celebrated and championed as humility is actually something else. In many cases, it is false humility. In many others, it's actually insecurity. And I think that's what we see here in Saul. Insecurity. Insecurity is consumed with self while true humility embraces greatness to serve others. I'll say that again in case you didn't catch it. That insecurity is consumed with self, while true humility embraces greatness to serve others. In contrast, let's look at David's greatest failing. David, I mean, he failed. David committed adultery. He saw this woman and said, I got to have her. It doesn't matter that she's married. So David took Bathsheba. She became pregnant. And then when he couldn't cover up his mistake, he took Bathsheba's husband and put him on the front battle lines. A sure death sentence. He was killed. So I'm going to pick up, this is in uh, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. There's a new prophet in town. (laughs) Then the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city. The one rich, the other poor. The rich men had a great many flocks and herds. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. Is that how you say that? You? A, a you? You. One little you lamb, which he bought and he nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd. 
to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then the Lord's or then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. David then said, or then Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Ouch. Now, if this were Saul being confronted in this instance, we would have heard excuses. We would have heard, I was up on top of my roof. Minding my own business. And there's this woman in my view bathing. I mean, shameful. She was bathing. I mean, talk about a temptress. It's her. She wanted it. It's all on her. I mean, I mean, I could take that some places. That, that I don't think we have time for today. But, but Saul would say, what, I was, what was I supposed to do? Look away? But with David, we don't have any excuses. David's only response, I've sinned against the Lord. There was nothing else to say. He took full responsibility. He was sorrowful. And his identity was never shaken. Saul's primary drive was to establish his own glory. David's primary drive was to glorify God. Saul sought God's hand. David sought God's face. That's why we have psalms like Psalm 130. I long for you more than watchmen would long for the morning light. I will watch and wait for you, O God, through the night. Psalm 84. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I mean, keep in mind, when he says a thousand, he's not meaning literally a thousand. It actually is just representative of an an infinite amount of days. He's not saying a thousand don't compare to one day with you, but a thousand and one, it might tip the scale. No, he's saying one day with you is better than infinity apart from you. I need you more than anything. Now, I know you're saying, I've read the Psalms. David still went to God with needs. He he absolutely did. There's not a problem with going to God with needs. But he sought God's face. His primary desire was actually to please God. This has been, as I said earlier, this has been something I've been processing with God. And and Lily, in the last couple weeks, gave me the perfect example. You know... For those of you who, who don't know Lily, she is my little one and a half year old. And as 
one-and-a-half-year-olds are, she can't fully communicate. I, I have tried to teach her sign language. I know some of you are thinking, have you tried sign language? It really works. It's good. And I know it can. I know, I know. Um, more, please. More, please. Hungry. Thank you. She doesn't want it. She refuses. Utterly refuses. So here's what I get instead. She wants something. Ah! Ah! And just stares at you. Ah! Until you respond and get her what she wants. It's normally food. The girl likes to eat. Sometimes it's a toy, but it's normally food. And so then we go, okay. And then, and then she, I mean, she, she's only yelling because she wants your attention. But then, but then, oh, she'll show you what she wants, and you take her where, where she wants to go, and she gets her food or her toy, and she's all happy, and you put her down, and she runs off, and she's all good. You know, it works. <laughs> it gets dad's attention, I guess. But then one day, a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I was, and I was reading. And very quietly, she climbs up onto the chair next to me. Then she climbs up onto the table. Then she cr- climbs across my book, on top of my book, and sits in my lap. She didn't ask for anything. She just wanted daddy. <laughs> it felt so good. She just hugged me and I hugged her. What she received was the pleasure of a father who was smitten with her. You know, it's amazing. Like, so often we want something from God. We want to hear his voice. God, what am I supposed to do? I need this. I need something. I need you to speak. And yet we're, we're, we're expecting him to speak out of his hand. It's amazing what shifts when we seek his face. That's where he's speaking. <laughs> When we seek his face, we get to actually the answers we've been looking for. He's like, come here. Let me tell you secrets. Let me unlock wonders. But you know what also happens? As it did with Lily. Hey, do you want something? What do you want? Come come here. What do you want? Do you even want, I know it's the morning, but do you want ice cream for breakfast? We don't have to tell mom, but you are so cute. You can have ice cream for breakfast if you want. The beautiful thing is when we seek God's face, we also get his hand. You seek his hand, you're going to get his hand. You seek his face, you get infinitely more. The things we've been crying out for, the things that we worry ourselves over, 
When we seek His face, they just seem to work themselves out. We actually find out the reality of 1 Peter 5-7, that cast your cares on Him, for He cares for you. It reminds me of an old hymn. One of my favorite. It says, Turn your eyes. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His beautiful face, or His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. If we seek His face, we get His hand. But we also get something else. When you see the face of God, you can't help but get hungry for more. When we behold the face of God, one look won't be enough. A nice church service will not be enough for you anymore. Just coming in, oh, I got filled up, I feel better now. That won't be enough. That won't satisfy you anymore. A t- little tingle of His presence, that won't satisfy you anymore. The best the world has to offer will never be enough. Nothing short of the fullness of His manifest presence on, on the earth will do. God, we need your manifest presence here. And here's the thing. If we join in unity and collective hunger, that your hunger meets your hunger, meets your hunger, meets your hunger, meets my hunger, there's no telling what God will do. Shannon and I, gosh, we had the honor and the privilege when we went to BSSM six years ago, we got to be in one of the services where a glory cloud showed up. Where there was this gold swirling around. It didn't come from anywhere. It didn't fall down. It didn't... I don't know. It just... Just kept going. It was whirling. It was whirling over here and then over here it was actually just raining down constantly. It was, it was bizarre. I... I recently saw a video that, it's, that something similar happened again in BSSM. I saw a video um, posted by a student where it was raining in class. I, I saw it on the video. It's raining across the stage. And it wasn't raining outside. And nothing inside was getting wet. It was just a supernatural manifestation of the reign of God as His people sought Him with hunger. Do you know the result of an encounter? Especially one like this. More hunger. Like, we won't stop and say, oh, that was good. Glad we got that. Now I can move on. No. I got to have more. I got to have more. When we are grounded in the truth of our identity, we are free. The truth will set you free. We are free to fully love and pursue God. And when our hunger rises to heaven, heaven responds.